0: We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike.
1: Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman. I'm honored to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators, and I've been a um, fire, fire investigator and expert for over 45 years, um, 46 really, if you tell the truth, uh, in, uh, in the Midwest and all over the country.
2: And this is Donna Ingram. I'm a Pest Director of the International Association of Arson Investigators and have about 30 years in fire and fraud. And welcome to Speaking of Fire.
1: Well, today we have two great guests. Um, we're honored to have these people. They're they're professionals. They're well-known uh, throughout our industry. And, in fact, anybody that can watch television actually will see uh, some one of our guests here. i um, have been on uh, many podcasts. Uh, and many, many stations. We have uh, Robert Rob Wiley. Uh, Rob has been a um, uh, with the fire service for over 30 years. Uh, he was he started out as a volunteer and then he became the chief of the Cotter Cotterville. Uh, Fire Department, Fire Protection District in St. Charles County, and then uh, president of the Greater uh, St. Louis Chiefs Association, and he is currently the president of the Professional Fire and Fraud Investigators Association of Missouri. Um, he's also been a, uh, a tactical medic, um, a team leader, and a St. Charles uh, regional um SWAT team for that SWAT team for the last 20 years Uh, he's got a whole bunch of of good bio stuff here but I don't want to spend my whole life uh, reading his bio (laughs) here so uh, no thank you very much and so Rob uh, welcome and and welcome to speaking of fire thank
3: you great to be with you guys I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you
1: well, thank you. And then also with us is uh, Chris Sabolero. He is an internationally recognized leadership specialist, so maybe you can teach me something. He's a best-selling author, and he's been on ABC, NBC, CBS, and even Fox, sorry about that, and uh, and spent 30 years in the emergency medical services career. He's a certified member of the John Maxwell team, which is, and an official member of the Ford's Forbes coaching council so he is no schlock when it comes to leadership and uh, he both of these people were intimately involved in the Ferguson Missouri um, incident Uh, and so we're going to talk to them individually and then of course a a conversation together um, about that incident but we'll start with Rob. Uh, Rob will you uh, just kind of open this up for us a little bit for some of the well you know this is an international show so sure. some people won't be uh, as intimately aware as, well, I used to be a detective in St. Louis County, so I used to, I'm not far the county, but in the county with the munis. But um, will you kind of give a backdrop for what happened
3: here? Sure. Uh, this happened back in 2014. Uh, it was in August. I don't remember the exact date at this point. Uh, there was a police officer involved shooting in the town of Ferguson, Missouri, which is about... I don't know, 10, 10, 15 minutes due west of the city of St. Louis and in St. Louis County. It's a fairly small town. It's a nice little town, uh, residential primarily, kind of a blue-collar town, uh, some great restaurants, some great shops. At any anyway, rate, there was this uh, I'm sure about shooting, and, and I won't go really into the background on that, but uh, it, it, lit off, it lit a fuse in the community. And, and to say that this shooting was the catalyst for the, uh, the rioting and the protests that followed, I think, would really be uh, short-sighted and selling the topic short. In fact, there's been some racial tensions in that community for many, many years. And I think this was just kind of the, uh, the catalyst that had it all in motion. And, and what followed were uh, 90 days of uh, protests, rioting, looting, burning of buildings, It uh, basically just violence against the community. Uh, culminating in uh, November, when the grand jury uh, found that uh, Officer Darren Wilson, the officer involved in the shooting, was uh, would not be tried for the shooting. That the shooting was a good was a good shoot in in the eyes of uh, the law.
1: Right, and I appreciate that. And you're uh, for some reason you're uh, you went f- uh, the
2: um, fading quality.
1: Here. Yeah, the quality of your of your um, uh, microphone changed uh, during okay. the course we'll of that. Work on that. So yeah you want to want to get a little closer that's it that's it right there it was better so let's let's uh, continue with that uh, the the reason the officer was uh, was found to uh, not be uh, it was a righteous shoot was because they even found uh, blood inside the the vehicle um, in this in the and in the, well, anyway uh, the physical evidence along with the with the other testimony uh, exonerated this officer now i know yeah, that there correct. was yeah and so and and I I come, I grew up in North St. Louis which was uh, at that time uh, it was uh, it was a ghetto area and then um my family moved from North St. Louis to Ferguson and uh and they lived there for many years and finally moved south but um but I wanted to tell you we're very familiar with that and then uh, you were when you were there you were attached to what the EMS uh, the the the, what was it, the SWAT team? I was
3: attached to a, I was attached to a SWAT team that was dispatched to the Ferguson area to try to deal with some of the unrest. Um, our SWAT team has a tactical medical support element that's assigned to it. Um, it's comprised, or a big team. We have um, over 40 police officers. We have six paramedics and an ER physician that's assigned to the team. Uh, So we went out there in mass on on any given night. There were no less than two medics uh, with the team. Most nights we had uh, three or four. So my, my primary function to be there was to support the team medically. So if any of the um, officers in, in our uh, unit were injured, that we could take care of them immediately. uh, Even though we were in a, in a real hostile area that traditional EMS really couldn't operate in effectively.
1: I see. And, uh, and then, um, and then Chris uh, Savalero, you were you were there also, weren't you? I mean, you were part of a, a what the uh, Christian Northeast uh, uh, EMS team, or what was that?
4: Yeah, at the time, I was the chief of EMS for Christian Hospital, and Christian Hospital was the primary nine one one provider for Ferguson, Missouri and uh, seven other municipalities that were around uh, Christian Hospital. And uh, we were very familiar. Uh, Ferguson was a regular of our service area. We actually had two trucks that were stationed in the city of Ferguson. And when the, uh, on August 9th, when this uh, event occurred, uh, I was on scene, uh, you know, my my assistant chief was on scene in uh, uh, moments. I was on scene about three hours after the initial shooting. And uh things were getting very, very interesting at that point, and we really knew that we were involved in something uh, even at that early stage that uh, had a big magnitude that uh, could cause a lot of challenges and uh, uh, we really weren't disappointed with that
1: right and and uh, and that's, and of course, there was a national uh, News coverage of this, and uh, and and um, and particularly uh, the night of the uh, the major night of the fires, and and uh, and at that time, and Rob, I'll go back to you for a second. You were right there, attached to in the hot zone, is my understanding. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's correct. We had initially been sent down there um, as a tactical element that would respond in if there was the need for an officer rescue or a civilian rescue or an active shooter situation. And that lasted about 20 minutes uh, when the, the road officers that were down in, in the city of Ferguson in the, in the difficult area uh, were overrun. And then we were thrown into the mix to try to, to regain, regain some semblance of order in the area. So it, it was very chaotic.
1: Yes, and I wanted, I wanted, I want you to kind of give this a, a little bit of a clarification, since uh, many times I've been asked this about Ferguson. Since people know I came from that area, and initially, uh, or my parents moved there. Actually, I came from North St. Louis. But um, what was the when you see all of these great guys and, and ladies that were part of law enforcement, and they're standing there. Um, you know, ready to go, and and but they're standing there with the vehicles and and all that, and yet there's still a uh, fire uh, going on, and and they're not moving, and they're not moving on and marching on the on the rioters. Uh, what what why was they why were they withheld? What what was the political atmosphere at this time?
3: It, it was what? it was completely political, and that was probably one of the most disheartening aspects of the entire event for me, was that in, in effect. Uh, the, the politicians that were in in charge of that area, the city of St. Louis, St. Louis County, and even the state of Missouri, uh, basically told law enforcement to stand down. To basically just kind of uh, just be there, don't don't be proactive, don't don't be offensive, uh, and and it really handcuffed us. And and the bottom line is that, and I always make a very clear distinction between the people that were rioting and the people that were protesting. The people that were protesting. Were, were orderly. Uh, they were following the law. If the police asked them to move off the street, they moved off the street. They were very compliant. But there was an element there that was really just bent on destruction. And they were using the protesters almost like human shields. And I would venture to guess that more of the protesters were injured by the rioters uh, than they were by the police uh, in in big numbers. Uh, the, the rioters, also the thing that we found interesting, after the first night we started to take some of our notes of people that we had encountered or detained, and a large majority of them were from out of town, from out of state. They weren't even part of the St. Louis community. They, they were busing in, uh, and we started to see ads on social media, people free bus rides into Ferguson to you know join the cause or whatever they were calling it at the time. Uh, so, so really a lot of the chaos and a lot of the destruction was not caused by the people of Ferguson. It was caused by people that had come in from out state uh, to cause problems. And the political ramifications of it were, it's kind of complex, but in short, the county executive at the time, Charlie Dooley, had just been defeated in his election, so he was like persona non grata. he was not around. So there was that vacuum of leadership, uh, which uh, the governor at the time, Jay Nixon, stepped into that vacuum, and in my opinion, made some really, really poor decisions. Uh, that really had negative outcome uh, and really caused more problems than it than it could have potentially solved.
1: Yeah, well, I think Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry.
4: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that you've got to think about as well. And I think everything that said uh, that Rob said, uh, I really have to echo because those are the things that we were feeling. I mean, Governor Nixon was on the phone with us the very first night. I mean, so he, he was aware of the situation. And, and uh, one of the paramedics that worked with us uh, at Christian Hospital was a state representative. And, uh, you know, the, we were communicating with the governor's office. But one of the things that you've got to remember is, is the time that this happened. And this was really the, the creation of the Black Lives Movement. You know, th- this was the first event of an officer-involved shooting that spurred this type of reaction. And this is really the catalyst that has caused subsequent uh, events to occur, uh, i.e., Baltimore, Charlotte, up in Minnesota. I mean, so th- this really kind of set the standard for the reactions uh, that happened around the United States. And there really was nothing like this since the L.A. riots that occurred in the 90s. So. When we talk about the politicians and things were political, politically uh, motivated, what I really think happened in retrospect was even the politicians didn't know how to deal with it. You know, so I think as they tried to move forward, and this is my own opinion, of course, I think if they tried to move forward... They didn't want to make things worse. In retrospect now, and if hindsight's twenty twenty, we could say that uh, things should have been done differently. I just think that we were because one of the challenges that I had as well, uh, at the time uh, I was in EMS almost 30 years, this was an event I never dealt with before. And the decisions I was making today, I couldn't make tomorrow because the situations were changing. And I really think this was inexperience, and inexperience caught us with our pants down.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'd have to agree with some of that we had never experienced anything like that before um, i think I think if there were any tactical errors that were made in the early stages of that is is that that some of the politicians didn't didn't um, kind of say all right you you people with the police department the law enforcement local community organizers let's make some decisions on the ground floor and and in fact they brought in a state highway patrol captain to be the incident commander as opposed to the st. Louis county police chief uh, this gentleman had Great intentions, but really knew not a lot about the area. He he spent some of his youth in that area, but professionally had never spent any time in that area. And it just became these compounding uh, mistakes. And, and and again, and this is my opinion that when you when you're faced with that kind of thing, uh, you saw it in Baltimore as well. I believe one of the um, the politicians in Baltimore, it may have been the mayor, made the comment: "Let's give them room to loot. Let's give them room to blow off steam." And. That sounds good in theory, but in fact, you have to remember the difference between the criminal elements and the people that are just out there exercising their First Amendment rights. I'm all for giving everybody all the room they need to protest and, and say what they want to say. But when you put that kind of a practice into the um, to the to the unruly, to the lawbreakers, what that really is weakness. That shows weakness to them, and weakness to them is something to be exploited, and they exploited it very well.
2: And this is where uh, fire comes in. Uh, one of the things, you know, fire being used as a weapon. What do you mean by that when you say that?
3: Well, the fire was used, I think initially what had happened was it was just, it was uh, uh, vandalism. You know, somebody set a fire. Somebody set a and And for some reason, there was a quick trip, gas station, quick mark, that became kind of a target the first couple of nights of this type of activity. They set several fires there. Uh, they'd broken into the place, and then somebody started to set fires. And I think in the initial steps of it, it was vandalism. But then it became very apparent uh, that that activity, that the fire setting, got great media attention. It, it focused everybody on what was going on. As soon as something caught fire, it, it kind of lit the imagination of the press. It got the coverage. And make no mistake, this was a very socially, social media-driven event where people were learning as they went what got attention, what would attract the press, what would keep them on the front page of the paper or on the websites. And they quickly saw that fire would do that. So they used fire as a way to keep the attention on what was going on there. Uh, so yeah. in that sense, it was used as a weapon.
1: And that, and that they're absolutely correct. And, you know, what's really sad about the whole thing, it, during social unrest, um, if there's bombings or there's fire, it, it does uh, grab media attention, and and media attention uh, feeds uh, other people. Uh, when you let um, when you let things go, now understand, I'm, I'm you and I. None of us are, want any kind of a police state, but we do want people to. Uh, to be orderly in the protests, as you brought out so so eloquently, uh, Rob, the, the protesters that were that were just there to protest were doing the right thing, and they and they moved when they were asked to move, and if they blocked traffic, they moved when they were told not to. Um, it was the other people that incite. Uh, these things that came in, but uh, black lives do matter, and 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 all lives matter, and we know that. And uh, and frankly, there's been some lousy shootings in in this Absolutely. country. Yeah, but and and Chris, I want to talk to you about that for a second because you. We were dealing with EMS a lot. I mean, I know uh, Rob was with the, the hot zone TAC team. You were you were um, you were uh, there with Christian. did Did you treat a lot of Did you treat a lot of injuries uh, at, at the first?
4: Yeah, I mean, and, and you have to remember. I mean, one of the challenges that we had with this event, this, the initial event was 19 days. Mm-hmm. and One of the challenges that we had with this event was we were all alone probably until day six or seven, meaning that it was just EMS. It was, um, it was the tactical team. It was the fire department, Ferguson fire department, uh, the Ferguson police department and the County police department. So when we talk about, you know, everything that was going on, uh, it seemed that at a later date is when all the other, um, folks started to get involved. Then we started to see, uh, of course, the state police came in. Then we started to see the FBI come in. Then we started to see all these other folks came in. when we talk about a media circus, it was amazing because uh, we have ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox. And then ESPN was there and BET was there. And, <laughs> and we're trying to figure out why are all these people were, were coming. I actually had a New York Times reporter show up at my house try and interview me but getting back to your question uh you know we really did see a lot of different uh injuries initially and then what happened as people started to get hurt they started to disappear as we were responding so we would hear that there'd be a shooting or we'd hear that there'd be uh um, an inhalation from uh uh, from tear gas and by the time our ambulances would get there our crews would get there the uh um, the victims would be gone. The patients would be gone. And really, what they were trying to do is really kind of stay out of the, the public eye or stay out of the ambulances and hospitals, because the eventuality would be that uh, police would show up and probably arrest them. Uh, we we took care of a few of our uh, of our peers. Uh, there was a couple of the tactical guys that were hurt a couple times. I, Rob, I remember. I think one of you guys uh, got hit with a cinder block and had a broken yeah. ankle. You know, Correct. so we were. It, you know, so we were trying to do our best, but there were times where I had to make the decision as the EMS chief not to send ambulances because we didn't have force protection, and right. uh, it caused some challenges. It caused some challenges sometimes because even though we knew that we had to get in there and deliver the highest quality of patient care, we weren't doing it at the safety of our of our men and women. You know, they they're not combatants. Our and job don't is to make that, sure that there they was went the home. Time. At the, it was very. i sorry.
3: There was very minimal reporting on the fact that um we faced gunfire in that in that area of operation every single night. There was never a night that there, that there wasn't gunfire in in the area of operation, and Chris is exactly right. without force protection, they can't move safely.
1: Right, and so they, so it would be that they would withdraw. Uh, did they turn up, Chris, did they turn up at people that were injured, did they turn up at uh, far away hospitals uh, for treatment, or did you ever get any information on that?
4: Yeah, as a matter of fact, they did. Uh, Christian Hospital was part of the BJC Healthcare Network, which is 13 hospitals, and a lot of the folks that were hurt wound up uh, going to the downtown hospital in St. Louis City Um, and uh, we we would get reports of the people that would show up. We were very concerned about, you know, uh, the challenges that might happen at our hospital. And at one time, even during the November event, uh, we had National Guard presence as well because we were worried about uh, some of the challenges that we were going to see. But it was a very, very interesting time.
1: Did did anybody ever show up at, uh, you know, I've had when I was a police detective and, and officer uh, we had sometimes people uh, groups of people show up at police stations and try to cause uh, uh, some some difficulty there. Did you have any in the emergency rooms or anything like that do you have any kind of incidents where um, they had to you know resist uh, you know any kind of uh, rioting or anything like that?
4: yeah i mean the the and this was one of the mistakes, so when we talk about you know Rob and I have been very very uh you know, uh, vocal uh, and sharing this event with our peers around the United States. And, you know, I do a, a class and actually did a class with uh, Rob out there at Fire Rescue Med, and we talk about the, the successes and the failures and the mistakes that we make uh, during the event. So we were able to share that expertise with our peers when, you know, these events happen in their areas. And my first mistake was I transported a, uh injured protester and a police officer to the same hospital. And uh, that probably wasn't the best of idea because that brought uh, police presence, that brought, uh, brought uh, protester presence. And that was kind of uh, the very first night that we did that. And then subsequently uh, from that, we decided to take police officers to one hospital and take protesters to a second hospital. So um, we were very, very cognizant of the safety of the facility. Uh, We wanted to make sure that the patients who came to the hospital were going to be safe. We wanted to make sure that the members of the facility were going to be safe. And the professionals of uh, Christian Hospital in the uh, um, uh, leadership, uh, senior leadership, uh, did everything they could possible to make sure that there was safety. And uh, we're happy to say that there was no real major challenges uh,
1: in our emergency department. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, and Rob, you—we already talked about the fire was being used by uh, by the protesters to to get further. Not protesters, but the rioters actually, not the protesters. criminal element. Yeah, the criminal element. They were to to get attention. But how did uh, how did the responders deal with the fires? Because I remember them sitting there. Now we've only got about three minutes here, so sure.
3: Well, in short, they 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 were not able to respond to the fires because of the gunfire and the violence that was directed towards uh, the responders every time they came into the area, Uh, law enforcement, fire, EMS, if you came in there in a uniform and a marked vehicle, you were a target. And there were several occasions where the fire department tried to come in and at least put a defensive firefight up to keep a fire from spreading to another building, and almost every single time they came under gunfire and we had to evacuate them out. So we just mm-hmm. got to the point where we we all looked at each other and said, you know, we're, we're going to have to let these buildings burn.
2: How many how many fires were there in total? I
3: think uh, the the busiest night, the, the first night after the shooting, there weren't there, very many. I want to say a handful. Uh, the last night after the in November after the grand jury verdict came, and I think the count I heard was they had fifty six uh, working fires going
4: within about I don't know what is that, Chris, about a two mo- two square mile area. Yeah, it was really. I mean, there were really blocks burning, Robin. And you're absolutely right. And I, I agree. I think the number was in the 50s.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, see, and you know, that's really. Um, I'm really glad you guys are on the show because a lot of people did not understand when they sh- when they were looking at the uh, media. I mean, the media didn't under- didn't cover that as well. But um, you had you had all the law enforcement people there and the fire department right there and then things are burning and you don't see you don't see apparatus there what you see is it's burning and then it spreads and it's burning and so they're thinking why aren't they there well they're not there because they're under fire but uh, it, that wasn't really clear to a lot of the um, viewers I know that and uh, and you can you have to protect your people uh, did any of the opera uh, just we got one minute did any of the apparatus, was it hit by gunfire? I mean, were there actually bullet holes in, in the apparatus or anything?
3: I believe one of the Ferguson fire trucks
4: got some gunfire, and some of your rigs got shot at too, didn't they, Chris? Yeah, the rigs were shot at, none were hit. Uh, I believe uh, one of the fire engines were, uh, were damaged with gunfire. And multiple police cars were struck with gunfire.
1: I can imagine. Yeah, well, and, no, okay, so go ahead.
2: Well, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, I, I want to talk to you about the actual fire scenes, Rob, and, sure. and how that was processed and things like that. So let's go ahead and take a break now and join us.
1: So when you come back, come back to Speaking of Fire. <laughs>
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World,
0: or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. listening to speaking of fire with mike schlattman and donna ingram to call in to today's show please call 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. now back to this week's program
2: Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Before the break, Rob, we uh, were talking about uh, over 50-plus fires being set there in Ferguson during the riots and protests. And I wanted to ask you uh, about the, the not, not too detailed, but I'm sure you had a, a large response of maybe NRT down. How did you process those scenes? You had to treat them individually, correct?
3: Correct. Each individual scene is an individual crime scene that had to be treated as such. Uh, it, it, the tendency was to treat them all as one big fire, but they really weren't. Uh, we had we had uh, assets from the FBI national response team, their evidence response team, ATF national response team, local uh, bomb and arson from St. Louis County Police, as well as uh, the state fire marshal's office, just kind of descended on the area after everything kind of cooled down which you can imagine presents its own challenges because they weren't able to get in and look at some of these scenes for days and days after uh the night of the verdict in november uh and and you can just imagine with a a defensive firefight when they were able to go in there and put water on it they just dumped dumped hundreds of thousands of gallons on it and then it all froze solid so it was a very challenging challenging process
1: was it was it um what was the? Were they using uh, available materials or uh, ignitable liquids? What was the primary? Both.
3: I think that, uh, from, from what I've read in the after-action reports and what I saw personally, the majority of the fires were set with available materials. You know, they go into these, uh, these quick trips and these grocery stores, these gas station grocery stores, and every single one of them has a whole rack full of lighters sitting there, and they grab some lighters. There's some surveillance video of somebody just popping open a lighter out of a case, and uh, setting a display on fire. So I think the majority of it was um, available materials. As we got later into the incident, closer to the verdict in November, then we saw more things that involved flammable liquids.
1: Yeah, okay, because uh, well, when they spread, I mean, if you can't throw apparatus at it, you can't go put, uh, you know, firefight, well, what, of course, it naturally progresses to other things and uh, other other combustibles and spreads and then uh, causes more and more damage. And Chris, did you have any people um, injured, did you say, uh, any uh, firefighters are, are did, uh, injured during the firefights or anything when they did get in there?
4: No, I yeah, we were really lucky that uh, we didn't have any of our peers that were too hurt. In the, of course, in the August event, it was all supportive, rehabilitation, supportive care, and uh, then we went ahead uh, and just kind of paid attention to make sure that uh, none of our peers uh, were going to you know need us, and we were very lucky that they didn't. Chris's group set up some
3: outstanding rehab uh, for the officers that were in, in the hot zone. And when you when you came out of there uh, to a makeshift command post, they, they really took care of people. I mean, they were making sure they were hydrated. They made sure they were fed, uh, checking vital signs, taking care of uh, hygiene needs of the officers, which you can imagine in August in St. Louis is a hot, sticky mess uh, with no small task. So, I mean, they, they really did yeoman's work keeping everybody up and, and healthy.
1: Yeah. No, well, you, you had mentioned that uh, that some of the um, protesters were were uh, hurt by by the rioters. They they had got inflicted with injuries uh, also. Um, you know, did your did your people treat the um, the the uh, protesters also?
3: We did. We we um, our, our primary our primary mission is to take care of the members of our team. But if everything's going well in that respect, and we have the resources, our team leaders. Uh, would task us to take care of uh, protesters um, as well as rioters or even innocent bystanders. We treated some people from the media. Uh, most of it was minor cuts, bruises. There, there was a lot of uh, debris being thrown. Uh, one of the favorites was d uh, cell batteries being put in socks and, and flung towards the line. And what they would do is they would set back about 20, 30 feet behind the protesters and throw things. There's some great pictures that the Post-Dispatch took of them. Breaking up landscaping blocks from businesses into throwable sizes, you know, and a lot of those ended up hitting the protesters in the in the backs of the heads, and we did treat some of those.
1: That's a shame. Now, and Chris, you had the um, uh, Christian uh, Northeast, but you also had, um, like you said, you had all these other um, in the in the system. Uh, What are the major, what were the major um, things that you were seeing uh, in the other hospitals or whatever? Were they getting, are they minor injuries or did you have any really severe injuries uh, come in? You know, we did treat
4: a a couple of gunshots. Uh, We did treat a few injuries with rubber bullets. Um, You know, a lot of head injuries from bleeding, as Rob mentioned, uh, as being hit with, uh, um, you know, debris. Um, uh, As we started to move along, there were a lot of treatments for uh, exposure to tear gas. Um, And, of course, our folks were having challenges because uh, they were in that same area. Um, So, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, in the the second uh, event that I call it, which was the November event, uh, we, we needed to really start to, you know, because we, you know, one of the things that was a very eye-opening experience or awakening for me during the November event, Rob and, uh, you know, the gang, is that we, we were preparing for this. We knew that it was going to come, and, and we were yes. waiting for the verdict to come. And uh, one of the things that uh, kind of chilled me at one point, I said, well, we've been preparing since August, and I think we're ready for the November event. And then one of the pastors uh, from uh, North St. Louis said to me, but you have to remember that thug element has been preparing too. And it was really true because that's where we started to see a little bit more of the uh, the Molotov cocktails. We started to see uh, there was one um, raid in the uh, Canfield Apartments to where they, uh, they uh, got their hands on some um, syringes filled with drain cleaner. Um, so they were going to be very, very uh, prepared as well. And uh, it was a very, very scary time. I think the second one was more scary than the first because of the unknown of uh, what may have happened uh, that we may not have prepared for. Yeah, I would agree
3: with that 100%. They were learning, too. This is We were preparing, they were preparing. And uh, the, the, we all knew that, that that verdict night was not going to be a good night, whether, whether he was found uh, to be bound over for trial or not. Uh, we knew that there was going to be problems, and if he was not bound over for trial, which most of us suspected would be the case based on what we knew about it, uh, it was really not going to be good. And I would say that the, the violence the night of the grand jury verdict was uh, quadruple what we experienced in a few nights after the shooting. It was much more focused. It was much more violent. Uh, it much more uh, involved gunfire as well as uh, using fire as a weapon. It, it, was a, it was a very, very intense night.
2: Did you uh, Were there any prosecutions resulting from the fires? That was yeah, set? there were, and
3: I think they're still ongoing. Um, I don't have a number for you, but I know that the prosecuting attorney's office, uh, immediately after the fact, started to get a hold of uh, news video, surveillance video, eyewitness testimony, and I know that some, um, some cases have been brought uh, I'm not real familiar with the outcomes. Uh, I know there were some uh, people that were successfully prosecuted, uh, and I don't know if it was for first degree arson, second degree arson, knowingly burning. You know all the variables that that uh, the prosecutors may use as tools to get a, a conviction. But yes, the, the prosecutions are ongoing. As a matter of fact.
2: Well, what a learning curve in St. Louis for arson. I mean, it, on, on a, a silver lining level, that's good for the entire community for these prosecutors to understand what arson is and what they have available as tools.
3: Yeah, we all know how difficult it is to prove arson cases. And a lot of times it's the case that the prosecutors don't fully understand it or if they understand it, they're not sure how to relate it to a jury so that they understand it, because it can be very technical, it can be very scientific, and then kind of a daunting task. And I think uh, not only the prosecutors, but I think that the people of the area saw the importance in, in prosecuting these types of things and understanding it a little bit better so that they could get a good result in the courts.
1: Yeah, the ATF has a uh, arson for prosecutors school to teach prosecutors exactly um, how to how to process these these cases and how to present them. And then uh, the IAAI, the International Association of Arson Investigators, has a expert witness testimony uh, course for fire uh, investigators. In fact, I, I'm. I'm honored to be their primary facilitator on that, but uh, but we all learn lessons from these things, and I and I know that uh, that that Chris and both of you, uh, Bob and Chris, you you've both learned a lot of lessons, and Chris, you you've do you have you incorporated those into any of your the lessons learned into any kind of uh, uh, classes that you're teaching now or what.
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we, we've tried to do is, and Rob has been great at it as well, is, you know, we want to be able to take the lessons learned, and we want to be able to share it with our peers. And uh, I actually wrote an article for uh, Forbes uh, on, you know, leadership during civil disobedience. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there were a lot of lessons learned. And, and one of the challenges that uh, was very, very interesting for us was that, you know, what worked for us today and the decisions we made today, we couldn't rely on them tomorrow because as the um, education of the thug element and the education uh, of the uh, EMS and the fire and police, uh, it was growing exponentially, and we had to be able to be very, very dynamic. Um, We had to be able to admit that we had made mistakes, that we made um, uh, decisions that weren't right. And it wasn't about ego. It was about getting it right. And you know, we had the responsibility, all of us had the responsibility of making sure our first responders went home in the morning. I promised them. I promised I was not going to put my dress uniform on and have to go to anybody's home to talk about your uh, loved one was hurt and we needed to make sure that everybody was safe. But I could tell you that there were uh, mistakes, there were failures, uh, there were successes, and there were lessons learned. And uh, uh, I'll I'll always remember those.
2: I want to point something out here too, and Rob, you said something key uh, earlier. We, uh, I'll just use the arsons as an example. In a mass event such as this, Each individual thing that occurs is an individual event. It's an individual crime, and it needs to be treated as such. Of course, during an event, we have adrenaline, we have different things. You're not uh, accustomed to mass events like that, but... uh, particularly in the fires, we all know that that happened and we know what the motive was throughout all those 50-plus fires, but each one has to be, when it gets to a court level, has to be treated as its own crime. Correct, Rob?
3: Yeah, that's correct. Each one is an individual crime. You have to prove individual motive. You have to prove individual needs and opportunity and all the elements of the crime for each and every single fire. And sometimes that gets really lost in the haze in a big event like this. It's really easy to say that, yeah, the fire started because the protesters were mad. Right. Well, that's not really <laughs> something you can bring to a jury. What you have to do is show them that they did it as part of uh, breaking and entering in vandalism. They did it as part of social dis- or civil disobedience. They did it as uh, purely just a-, a vandalism crime. All those things have to be kind of fleshed out and separated and, and-, and proven to, to a jury to get a successful uh, prosecution and
2: that's not easy. And likewise Chris, all those inter- injuries are assaults. those are things that uh, and, and I don't know if there were any any do you know were, were there anything moving forward legally for any of the injuries the protesters sustained or the law enforcement?
1: Yeah,
4: I'm not really sure. And it, it, my, any answer I would give you would just be speculation. But one of the things that we really needed to be aware of is that all these injuries, uh, we didn't know what we were going to expect uh, or find on the other side when we arrived. And um, we just had to be able to, to keep ourselves aware. We had to keep good situational awareness. We had to be able to think critically. And, uh, again, safety was our biggest key. Yeah, that I think was, one of the biggest lessons yeah. that we learned... Was documentation.
3: How do you take what? Uh, because, like as Donna said well, correctly, everything that happens there is potentially criminal activity, assaults, fires, property damage, etc. And it goes on and on. So the people that were in that area, uh, the EMS folks, the fire folks, the police folks, trying to document what they saw as eyewitnesses, uh, became very critical. And we did a poor job of it because these guys are working twelve, fourteen-hour shifts. And the last thing they want to do is sit down for another hour and write reports. But we found after the fact that that's critical. You have to get those fresh, uh, observances from those eyewitnesses so that you get good, accurate reports as to what they saw. Because what they saw can't be recreated. Uh, you know, when, when the fire burns for three days after the initial fire starts, there's not much left to, you know, to tell you other than some of the forensic. But to have a good eyewitness statement that says the color of the flame, the location of the flame, the color of the smoke, you know, all these things we ask uh, firefighters and other witnesses to help us determine what was going on, it'll it'll be lost if you don't get it down quick. And we did a poor job of that and, and put some things in place to correct that.
1: Well, well, unless somebody thinks that we're bad mouthing the uh, the the media, we're not doing that because the media I comes will. in handy here. Okay, you can.
2: <laughs> I'm not going to. The
1: bottom line is only this: only. Well, the media, yeah, does in it, general a, a little bit of sensationalism. If it bleeds, it leads. I understand that, but at the same time, they also are taking a lot of raw footage that is good for us. And the documentation end. And, uh, and I know that you... Did you have any difficulty getting the any of the raw footage?
3: I wasn't involved in getting any of the footage, but I did hear some anecdotal tales that uh, that they were less than cooperative and it ended up in having to get subpoenas.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, that's too bad.
1: That is too bad. But then uh, social media also. I wish people would... Um, this spread through social media, but there are also... Other factors in social media, I mean, just because you see something that you could actually comment on it or, or try to resist that, uh, that growing trend. Uh, you know, I mean, we, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there, uh, a lot of misinformation out there. I, I know I, I sounded disparaging when I was talking about Fox. Well, okay, that's me. All right, but the bottom line, that's my opinion. But the the part
3: about social media is you're 100% correct. Uh, One of the things that really changed drastically from the November event into, excuse me, the August event into November was the use of social media, um, not only by the criminal element, but by the protesters to organize themselves. Here's what we're going to be, here's what we're going to do. But it was also used in kind of an antagonistic way to try to bait. uh, law enforcement to go to certain areas that they wanted them to show up at uh, where oh, really? there wouldn't be anybody there so that they could you know kind of divide and conquer so by mm-hmm. the time the November event came on we had a full staff of people uh from various agencies mm-hmm. monitoring social media and putting out social media messages it really became a socially media driven event uh by the November uh verdict event
2: well, and the bottom line is we, we can and should 100% work to be a step ahead of this, but yes. it, it, there are times that we're just not going to be um, because of those very things. And Another
3: great lesson learned there, Donna, was that when things came out, I mean, you remember early on, we had our own senator from Missouri, Claire McCaskill, calling our armored vehicles tanks. You know, like they had some big 40-millimeter gun on the top, and we were blowing buildings away like it was, you know, Dresden in 1943. We right. needed to get ahead of that and say, no, it's not a tank. It has no offensive capability. It's merely to protect the officers so they can go into an area, rescue people, get them out, and protect them from gunfire. But we, we did a really poor job of reacting to those types of things and when they came out in the media and on social media. We got better at it at the end. But in the beginning we mm-hmm. were really lacking in that in that response to some of those uh, incorrect uh, and I think some purposely misinformation that was put out
2: absolutely and I was fortunate uh, while it was going on of course I have a lot of family there and so forth and I have friends there that are even from Kansas City and <clears throat> there would be a report out on the news and then I had several friends on Facebook that would go, okay, here's what's really happening. You know, or, or people like yourself right. that are going, okay, this is this is the real. Here's the news, sensational news story, but this is actually what's going on.
1: I And I agree with that too. I mean, it, that's what I was trying to say. There There is a counter to social media and that is you, you're on it. So <laughs> right. how about countering? Right, right. you have to engage with it. Yeah and and mischaracterization of the of the vehicles uh um, somebody sees a military vehicle they they wouldn't know a humvee from a from from a ram uh, they they wouldn't know a rap uh they wouldn't know they wouldn't know uh, a, um, a, a what a tank looked like. I mean, unless right. I saw it on the military channel. So I know that uh, I I know Claire McCaskill. I know that was a mischaracterization. It wasn't intentional. But the, the bottom line is that her uh, perception of it. Yeah, that her perception. Of, I mean, you know, people say things. Hell, I do it all the time. I, I use the wrong word. Uh, I want to say but the something about was
3: that. We didn't correct it soon enough. We didn't jump in and, and be um, kind of progressive and 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 proactive and and dispel some of those things that were incorrect, intentionally or otherwise. But that, that was a big lesson that we learned. I mean, if you ask any police officer today, it, the greatest crime-fighting tool on the history of planet Earth right now is social media. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow. Well, and isn't, isn't the, and I think we're learning now, but w- wouldn't that be out of concern of some type of legal ramification? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. No. Well, That's you know what? I, I, I'll tell
1: you what's good about you guys is is that you're both teachers. I know, Rob. You you taught at the Kansas City arson task force, um, uh, I think a year ago or whatever. And yeah. uh, and and um, and and you're out there all the time, Chris. And and you're uh, you're a, a best-selling author. Uh, uh, I forgot to ask you what what uh, give us a name of a book so that we can get your book. Tom, thank you
4: so much. Yeah, I actually have two number one best-selling books. One is called Ultimate Leadership, Ten Rules for Success. Those are the rules I had to come up with to be a successful leader in my career. Some of them to, I learned. You talk about lessons learned. There was a lot in there. And the second one was called Ultimate Success, Strategic Leadership Excellence. Those are the uh, skills that someone needs to have to be a successful leader and uh, help engage their workforce.
1: How do you get? How do you get those?
4: Uh, you can go to Amazon and uh, put in the uh, uh, titles of those books, and uh, and uh, they're great stocking stuffers. So uh, please think about that for Christmas.
1: <laughs> there I'll you still go. Wait there for you my go.
4: autographed copy. Yeah, yeah, really. I'm, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to bring
1: it to your house, Rob. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go buy both of them and and, and meet with you sometime, Chris. And yeah, and and Rob, you're out there all the time now. You're even the president of the uh, PIFIA, which is the Professional Fire and Fraud Investigators Association in Missouri. Um, are you you're teaching now? Are you still? Um, what are you doing? What are you still working also?
3: Yeah, I, I retired from the fire department last December after 30 years there. And uh, mostly what I'm doing now is I'm traveling around, teaching and consulting. Um, Right now, probably the most uh, consistent thing that I speak on and teach on are um, tactical medical support of uh, police operations. We teach a tactical medical certification program uh, and then do a lot on on firefighter safety, Uh, you know, like I did with you guys out of the Arson Task Force in Kansas City, Uh, just making sure that firefighters and EMS personnel are aware of the surroundings, of the changing dynamics in society. It's not like it used to be where... You know we're the guys in the in the white hats, and everybody's happy to see us. Uh, assaults on uh, firefighters and EMS workers, as well as law enforcement, are at all-time highs, and we need to we need to bridge that gap in the firefighter and EMS education when it comes to uh, personal safety. So I've been spent a lot of time doing that.
1: Well, how do you, how do people get in touch with you if they need a class?
3: Oh, uh, you can reach out to me. Our, our we have a website. It's uh, www.catalyst.com. catalyst.
1: Tactical, all one word, dot com. I, I, we, we lost the last part of that. I think we were having trouble. Okay, with
2: Okay, I think we lost
1: Rob. I think we lost Rob here. Uh, well, Chris, um, did you hear that? I, I sure heard. did.
4: And I, I got to tell you, I mean, Rob is doing truly a great job of taking his expertise, not only in the fire service, but also from the event. Uh, You know, we actually had uh, him come out to our place at Christian Hospital and do some uh, uh, warm zone training for our paramedics. And as an educator, you know, Rob is really top notch. And uh, I totally recommend him to anybody out there who's thinking about, you know, wanting to have some great education. He's the guy to uh, get in touch with.
1: And you're still, both of you, still in the St. Louis area, correct? Correct.
4: We are. I live in uh, the city of St. Louis. Rod lives up there in St. Charles County, and looks like I'm going to have to go up there
1: and deliver a book. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid. An autograph so, book.
2: I'm gonna, yeah.
1: Well, the next time I'm in town, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Well, I have to go get those books first. But uh, I'll, next time I'm in town, I'm going to try and get in touch with you and see if you'll scribble something in in uh, my book too, if you don't mind.
2: Do you ever come out to Kansas City?
1: Uh,
4: I mean, I, would, I, I love to come out to Kansas City, happy to bring some out. And I hope you don't mind, though, when I do sign them, I do sign them in crayon. So, I mean, that's, uh, I hope that's not true. I would, I would not
1: expect anything else.
4: Sorry,
1: <laughs> okay, right, sure. okay. I cat-fingered the phone and dropped myself out. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, well, that's Darn okay. Darn it, we
2: were just talking bad about yeah, you Yeah,
1: we were just saying, uh, you're going to have to listen to the show. It's, it'll be archived now, and you'll have to find out what we talked about when you weren't there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there. But anyway, well, hey, listen, you guys, I really appreciate both of you uh, being with us. Um, you guys did a wonderful job there. And, uh, and once people like you that... Uh, that are dedicated. That uh, that makes the law enforcement and, and the fire service uh, exactly what it is. The heroes of uh, uh, of the of our our country, um, along with the military, of course. So anyway, so Rob, uh, hope to see you again soon. Uh, thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for your time. It was great to talk with you guys. Okay, and Chris, looking forward to uh, to talking to you again sometime. And Rob, maybe you'll be on the show. Both of you, I hope. Uh, sometime in the future, and I'm going to get that those books and, and learn how to be a leader.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much. And Chris, thank
1: week. you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Okay.
2: Next week, we have...
1: Corey Reeves. Yes.
2: Okay. Corey
1: Reeves. Corey Reeves, Sorry. a manufacturer. Um, he is a fire investigator uh, that represents manufacturers of uh, of different kinds of um, of... Oh, all kinds of different kind of products. And he goes in there and he tells the truth as to whether or not um, uh, their their particular product failed. So uh, when you come back, I want you to come back to Speaking of Fire.
0: Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.